All right, well, we're one minute early, but I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, let me just, uh, of course, I'm going to pray for our time together as always, but let me just say that I am continuing on in objections to election. And uh, I hope <laughs> there's always this danger of like, how, how long do you spend answering objections? Like how many objections do you address before you just move on? I realize not everyone has the same amount of intention span for some of these more technical objections. And so I'm always in that, I was telling Ben Scott the other day that my struggle as a teacher is always to, always of being a little bit too technical or a little bit too advanced in public settings. And people are like, what is he saying up there? So probably it'd be a struggle to the day I die. However, I'm trying to balance it here. Uh, and, and so depending on how this goes, this may be our last answering objections, but we may have one more. But having said that, you know, the doctrine of election is a doctrine that does have a bunch of objections to it from detractors. And so it seems to me that it'd be good to continue to move on and address at least the most prominent ones. And so that's what I want to do this morning and perhaps next time. But first, um, let's uh, let's pray together. God, we are thankful for breath in our lungs. We're thankful for uh, a new day. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning and that we have an advocate uh, with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we come to you in his name. We ask for your help as we think about these things in humility and in kindness, but also with clarity and wisdom. So be with us during this hour. Please may it be fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, if you remember last time, I ended up reading but not responding to the following objection. And I'll just read it off the screen here. If our ordinary concepts of love and goodness cannot cross the creator-creature chasm without being distorted beyond recognition, then we can't really know what it means to say that God is loving or good. But God has revealed himself to us humans in precisely those words. And therefore, our ordinary concepts have to apply and therefore, we can't take seriously the idea of a loving God who hardens people's hearts and creates them with no hope of anything but damnation. And I said that it is certainly correct. No, actually, I didn't say anything yet. That's right. I didn't say anything. So you'll recall this creator-creature chasm. I've given a couple of examples. I'm going to give one or two more examples of the chasm. But this does a lot of this this is does a lot of heavy lifting in thinking about election and thinking about what would or wouldn't be fair of God to do. God is a creator. We are a creature. He is not a perfect creature. He is a perfect creator. He is a categorically different kind of being, and he can do a whole host of things that it would be sinful for you or I to do. And I listed a couple of those last time, hardening people's hearts, saying, leave no one that breathes in the, uh, the band there in Joshua, wiping out the... Uh, Canaanites in the promised land, leading the spirit, leading Jesus to be tempted, living for your own glory, not ex uh, living for your own glory. No, we couldn't do that. Uh, a, whole, a whole host of things that we could not do and, and be sinless. God could do, and he's not culpable for sin. And the different, and, and you ask, well, why is that? It's because he's God. So this objection says, Tyler, okay, here, I see where this is going here. I see where this is going. You're saying we can't reason across with our moral concepts, the creator-creature chasm. But if you're going to use that tool, you've got to go the whole way. Because what what, the path you're leading us down is a path to where we can't know anything about God. We can't say anything about God because none of our concepts apply. But God has revealed himself to us in those words. He said that he's good. 
He said that he is kind. He said that he is loving. And so, Tyler, here's the thing. Obviously, our, our, in, our moral intuitions uh, can cross the creator-creature chasm and apply to God. And we can, use, we can think about those things as they apply to God. And obviously, the idea of a loving God who hardens people's hearts and creates them with no hope of anything but damnation, that's not a loving God. That's not a God of love. That's not a good God. Okay, If you're going to say that that's like a, a moral square circle or something. Okay, And so this idea of the creator-creature chasm... That is a great way to destroy how we understand God. That's, that is the gist of the objection. Okay? And I think it's where people, I think it's a good question to ask if you're going to bring up the creature, creator creature chasm. Okay? So it is certainly correct that God has revealed himself to us um, as, a, as a good and loving God and that we must be able to understand those concepts. However, it is false that we are supposed to understand those concepts apart from what we see in the special revelation of Scripture. That's where this one airs. That's where this one airs. The special revelation of Scripture, the living, breathing example of Christ being, uh, to what the Scripture testifies to, being the ultimate demonstration of that. So you have the Scripture as special revelation, but then you have Christ, who, as Christian Zeliot <laughs> said the other day, uh, huh, who could have crossed the creator-creature chasm? It's like, okay, so it's a point well taken. I mean, of course, you know, God the Son wasn't created, but of course Jesus Christ was born in, born in Bethlehem, is born uh, to a virgin, right? And he did, in fact, become flesh and dwelt among us, and uh, surely, this thinking about the moral concepts according to how special revelation uses it and according to how we see Jesus' life bear them out is the only path forward here. Here's why, because here's the opposite problem. We are, if, it's the, if we go the other direction and we talk about, well, our moral concepts need to be what constrains what, the, what we think the text allows God to do or not do, we end up lost in a sea of whose love is it anyways? Whose love is it anyways? Well, who counts as, who, what counts as good? Well, what counts as kind? John Stott, for example, author of The Cross of Christ. Ah, what a, what a book, The Cross of Christ. Later in his life adopted annihilationism, the doctrine that, they're, that, that people go to hell, but then they fade out of existence. Why? Why would such a reformed, such a stalwart, because he just could not square that with a loving God. Well, what about, what about the idea that everyone goes to heaven? This is uh, the idea of universalism articulated by Keith DeRose, articulated by a, a popular level, certain authors that you've heard of. Why? Because love wins in the end. God is a God of love. Okay? The problem is, if we simply take our concepts and apply them to God as a souped-up human being... Uh, we don't really have any way to adjudicate whose concept of the good or the loving or the kind we're even going to use. So practically, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. What we have to do is we have to look at the Scripture when we see those terms, and then we have to see what's compatible with those terms, and we have to let that define our moral concepts. So yeah, we have good, and we have loving and kind, but then we have God alongside it doing those things, and so our intuition has to be 
transformed and molded by what the Scripture says about those moral concepts, okay? Um, once, we, once we get into that that doesn't seem loving, and so that text can't mean this space, we, we have started a project in what I call intuitive divine anthropology. Divine anthropology, and if that sounds odd to your ears, it is in fact odd, because God is not a man, Okay, that's study of man, right? Anthropology. Divine anthropology is analyzing God as though he were a man. And that is what some of this, these intuitions end up with. Um, so I've already mentioned that the Bible explicitly on all everyone's account pictures God as doing things that it would be wrong for us to do, which might cause you to think that there is quite a significant gap between uh, what God can do and remain good, and what you and I can do and remain good. And so we bring our moral concepts into Scripture, but they, are, um, they, they, they aren't just totally thrown out, but we don't exegete the Bible in light of them. We let the Scripture refine our talk, refine what good is. And in fact, even, even what love is with regards to one another, well, I'm just going to love them, I'm just going to affirm them and all their decisions that they make, because that's loving. Or I just want to enable them because this is what they, how they feel loved. Scripture enters in and says, no, 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 no. Okay? There is a, the, the prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians, that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight or discernment. That Christian love is a holy love. So we bring in these concepts, and the, and the words of Scripture were written into a first century context that had all these, this vocabulary in place, but the scripture tweaks and modifies what to our sinful minds uh, uh, that have not been exposed to any of special revelation, we, we, we probably never would have gotten some of these things. And we certainly would never get of God who would, for example, sacrifice his only son. It's a, it's a religion based on child sacrifice, as one commentator said. Like, that's not what anyone would make up, Okay. Okay, you can't. You cannot go send your son to be killed for somebody else. Your son might be able to do that, but yeah. I mean, but so, anyways, there's just there's there's a lot of dissimilarity, and we have to take that. Uh, and so we have to take that seriously. So, anyways, we do see ways that God is like an earthly father. Matthew seven, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or which, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? It's like, okay, so God is like a good father because he gives these good gifts. Okay, so there's some analogy there, but then there's disanalogy. Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might know your statutes. What about Job, someone who has... Sores appear. He's, Job gets volunteered by God for suffering. Have you considered my servant Job? Okay. There are a variety of things that God does that if a human father were to do uh, would be horrific. It would be horrific. Okay. And so we, we say, well, how do we know what's analogous and what's disanalogous? We, have to, we, we are stuck. And I don't mean stuck in a bad way. We are constrained by the Scripture. So here's, here's how I, it works in my mind. I look and I see God is good. Okay, understood. And I have an initial 
an initial kind of, as I'm reading the scripture, the Bible for the very first time, let's say, God is good. Okay, my, my, my parents are good. My friends are good. My school was good. Okay, we got a, a kind of a wide concept for what good could mean. And then the next verse, I read that God, you know, sends people to hell. Then all of a sudden, like, okay, well, my concept of good needs a little tweaking. Because I wouldn't ever send anyone to hell. That's horrible. Hell's a horrible place. No matter what anyone did to me, I would not want them to have eternal conscious torment. Okay, so fair enough. But there's a reason for this. because Oh, it's because God is holy. So I'm stitching together a story now. Okay, well, God is holy. He's just in this infinite punishment. Okay, great. Okay, so God can do X, Y, and Z. What says God is good? So it must mean that divine goodness is compatible with these things. I'm not sure I would have thought of that as a, as a casual Bible reader, but if we're going to believe both of them, it says that God is good and God does X, Y, and Z, and so those things are compatible with, uh, uh, with, with goodness as it applies to God. Oh, but look, so that means that I could do those same things. Oh, no, when I look over here, it says that if I do these things, if you even hate your brother in your heart, that you're guilty of murder. Wait, but Jacob I love and Esau I hated. Sounds like there's a double standard. It's like, yes. That's the whole, there is a double standard because one person is a creator and everyone else is a creature. And so my answer to this is, uh, we, we, I, I do want to take seriously the idea that our moral concepts have to apply. They are not totally thrown out, but they have to be refined. They have to be refined in accordance with what scripture tell us is, tells us is analogous and disanalogous with regard to God. Here, here's one way to respond to this if any of you have followed, if any of you have lost IQ points, uh, I should say, following the super intense debates in on divine simplicity, uh, you might say that this objection right here is much better aimed at the God of the philosophers, who traditionally don't have special revelation to tell them what's compatible with divine goodness, okay, than it, than it is uh, to theologians. Because if you're a philosopher and you just have the good, and then you have God, well, then you can you can see why most most Christian philosophers aren't reformed, because they're starting with just a concept of good, a concept of goodness. They're talking about God and ends up being a project in divine anthropology. Okay, the vast majority of Christian philosophers at the highest level are not uh, are certainly not reformed. And I think, again, it's because they're starting with conceptual tools and they're thinking, well, that's unintuitive. Well, that's unintuitive. Well, hold on. Our whole discipline is based on intuitive conclusions and this, that, and the rest. And so the cement settles and then they turn to scripture and find ways to justify those intuitions. At least that's what I've seen. Okay. Okay. So that's how, that's how I want to respond to this, I think, well-placed criticism to the creator-creature chasm that we, we do have moral concepts they do apply to God, but they only but they they apply to God in the way that Scripture says, which might be very different than how we would just intuitively, like a philosopher, think about those things. Is there any questions about that? I know that's a little bit that might be a little bit technical. Does that make sense? Yeah. Who, yeah, Romans 8.28. Yeah. yeah. Like, doesn't our, like, our definition of good need to be tweaked in that? Like, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. So it has to be tweaked just with regard to what God can do, but it also has to be tweaked with how we understand goodness in general, even in our own lives played out and what the end game looks like for a good life. Yeah, exactly. So we come in with concepts that aren't, it's not totally equivocal. It's not like we're totally off. We come to the scripture and God has revealed us the words like good. And it's not like the word good actually meant the word evil. And we're like totally in total equivocation. Like our concept has zero overlap whatsoever. But God is good in certain ways like a father. And then in other ways like a human father, he's not good in the same way. And we're, 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 we leave it to scripture to just say, this is where the analogy and disanalogy is. And if that doesn't comport well with intuitions, then it's our intuitions that have to get tweaked and changed. It's not my hermeneutics that goes back and changes. Okay? It's not my hermeneutics that goes back and changes. Oh, now, now because this seems unintuitive, this, this couldn't be what this text is saying. And I'm going to show you some examples of that from John Sanders' book in one moment. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, certainly, like what good looks like, my, turning out for my good has to change. It has to be in a totally redemptive framework, too, because some people's lives are very, very bad, and then they die. Some people suffer their whole life, and sometimes their life isn't even very long, and then they die. How is God working that up? Well, you have to be able to tell a story about there's something, there's a long game here. There's a full story of redemption, and what working out for good means has to be understood in light of a larger meta-narrative that Scripture lays out. Okay, really good point. Any other questions about kind of this objection and the kind of response that I gave, the moral categories? Okay, well, let me move on. If there are, you can come address uh, address me later on those. All right, well, let's go with ones, and I've, I've got a couple of them in syllogism form right here, and uh, uh, these are a little bit more straightforward. If God is truly loving and truly just, then all people must be given a genuine opportunity to be saved from sin. And I think that, that uh, I believe Mike was actually responding to something like this objection last time. If God is truly loving, then everyone must be given a genuine opportunity. This objection takes two forms. The one, uh, again, we kind of heard a little bit last time that everyone is entitled to hear the gospel for one reason or another. Uh, that one also takes two forms. Cer certainly it's just laughable that sinners deserve or are entitled to grace, a gracious opportunity. That one can kind of get thrown out. The sophisticated version says, no, 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 God's mercy is so overflowing, okay, that his mercy necessitates people having an opportunity. It's not that people deserve an opportunity. All they deserve is hell. But God's mercy, is, he overflows. He was so rich in mercy towards us that Christ died, okay? That's kind of the first one that we're going to talk about, that everyone should hear the gospel Second is like it, is that contrary to what Reformed people say, God could not have just sent everyone to hell. Okay? To think that he could drives a wedge between his justice and his mercy. Okay? So everyone has to be given a genuine opportunity to repent from their sin, and that takes two forms. One, that God's mercy uh, compels it, and that it would actually be unjust for him to have sent everyone to hell. Uh, and therefore, our doctrine here, I didn't complete the syllogism, sorry, I, I kind of do that, in my, I kind of did it in my head. Uh, therefore, the doctrine of election is 
is not true because there are people who do not have the a genuine opportunity to be saved for their sins. But we also might say, uh, neither do people who never hear, never hear the gospel, which is why I'm going to go to this right here. Okay, so the first idea that everyone must, hearing the gospel to be saved, um, the first move is to say, well, that's actually not necessary. Okay? That's actually not necessary. Natural revelation enough uh, itself is enough to cause people to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus um, Christ. Uh, this is actually to enter into a different debate about the fate of the unevangelized that we don't really have time to wade into. But I do, like I said, I want to read to you a couple of uh, quotes because this is going to you're, you're going to hear how some of these discussions go. Okay. Uh, some of them directly apply to what I just said. Some of them apply more widely to our debate. By the way, this is kind of the Mac Daddy study on um, the the destiny of the unevangelized. If you want all the views uh, that are not the standard view, of course, it lays out the standard view: restrictivism, uh, and then it lays out all the other views, including universalism, postmortem opportunity for repentance. If you're just looking for something to say, oh, here's these views. I didn't know some of these views even existed. This is where you want to be. Anyways, I want you to listen to this. They are responding to the idea that only those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ or, or, or believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, not, not saying how they necessarily do so, hear it. Um, and they're saying, no, th this cannot be the case. This restrictivist position it says right here, does God truly, does God truly love all people uh, uh, enough to genuinely desire that they be saved. Restrictivists, that means people who think you have to hear the gospel somehow, restrictivists would seem to be saying that he does not. Since they teach that he has not provided an opportunity for all people to benefit from the redeeming work of his son, because there are people who don't hear the gospel. They conclude from that that restrictivists don't actually believe that God desires all people to be saved. What kind of God is he who gives man enough knowledge to damn him, but not to save him, asks Dale Moody. Okay, the kind of God, it would seem, who does not truly desire to see all people redeemed, he says. Some restrictivists pose a yet more troubling problem by arguing both that the unevangelized are justly condemned for rejecting the light of general revelation and that even a total acceptance of that revelation would still be insufficient for salvation. Here's, here's, a great, here's one of these examples. This is like telling my daughter that I'm angry with her for not washing the dishes and then acknowledging that I would still be angry with her even if she had washed them. By this logic, the unevangelized are truly damned if they do and damned if they don't. Some adherents of the wider hope challenge the restrictivist theological control belief that a person's destiny is sealed at death because everyone deserves an opportunity to hear the gospel on this view. If God can show irresistible grace to all without harming his omnipotence and goodness, why then does he not, Reichenbach, an open theist, asks. So did y'all you, hear all the scripture references in there? Oh, those weren't in there. I, I, I missed them too. It's because uh, uh, they, they're, they're, they're not in there. 
this is the, the but this is kind of the flavor of the pushback that you get. We saw a really bad kind of example where there was no creator creature chasm. We see questions that appeal to intuitive concepts of God's fairness or this or that. But it, but it just doesn't let the scripture define what those categories mean. Um, I don't have time to make the whole case. I'm just going to briefly read Romans 10, 14. Okay? Paul asks in a series of rhetorical questions, this questions. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay? He doesn't imply by this that no one would ever receive any visions or dreams or something like that, like we've heard about encouraging stories in the Middle East about that, but, uh, but that people have to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one just worships nothing. Everyone's a worshiper of something. It's either a true God or a false God. He says earlier in Romans chapter 2 that the Gentiles who do not have the law perish without the law, that they're a law unto themselves having it written on their heart. Even their conscience accuses them. Okay, so the natural revelation is enough to bring knowledge of sin, knowledge of God. The heavens declare the glory of God that is sinfully suppressed, Romans 1, but itself is not enough to transform a heart. It is not the power of salvation. That is what the gospel holds. Okay, so I'm suggesting there's simply zero reason to believe that natural revelation by itself is sufficient to result in saving knowledge of God and that uh, I think that it is, there's zero reason to believe that somehow, including post-mortem or whispered in their ear by an angel right before death, or some of these funny views, that everyone hears the gospel. I just think that's just has no, there's no reason to believe that in the Bible. Everything would suggest to us that there are people who live and die having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? That should, that encourages Romans 10. Go, therefore. Right? That encourages the mission, in my judgment. What about the idea that God could not have sent everyone to hell? God could not just send everyone to hell. John Wesley, in Predestination, calmly considered one of his little tracts books. Um, he says, Do you think it will cut the knot to say, Why, if God might justly have passed by... He's responding to... the. Uh, he's considering election, and someone is asking, it seems... You know, if God could have condemned all men, why is it wrong that he only condemned some men? That's what he's saying. He's like, well, that's what election is. You, only, you know, not every, everyone stood justly condemned, and in mercy he just saved some. What's wrong with that? Um, he says, why might justly have passed by all men? He says, speak out. And then it seems like this person is restating their question. If God might have justly reprobated all men, for it comes to the same point, then he might justly pass by some. But God might have justly passed by all men, says Wesley. Are you sure he might? Where is it written? I cannot find it in the word of God. Therefore, I reject it as a bold, precarious assertion, utterly unsupported by Holy Scripture. If you say, but you know in your own conscience God might have justly passed by you, I deny it, he says. Okay? That's Wesley. He said, so listen, this reform story that everyone's guilty and God could have just sent everyone to hell, 
that divorces God's mercy from his um, from his his sovereignty and his justice. It's not that people deserve to be saved or deserve an opportunity to be saved. That's not it. It's that God is so rich in mercy that such opportunity just flows out of him like many other attributes, okay? He says, in making this supposition of what God might have justly done, you suppose his justice might have been separate from his other attributes, from his mercy in particular. But this never was, nor will ever be, nor indeed is it possible it should. All his attributes are inseparably joined. They cannot be divided, no, not for a moment. Therefore, this whole argument stands not only on an unscriptural, but on an absurd, impossible supposition. That's Wesley. Yeah, real quick, real quick. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Speaking of Wesley, No, no, he believes all men stand before God guilty, certainly. You've got a very strong doctrine of depravity. All of them stand before God guilty, but he just thinks it would be, that God could not have just passed over all of them and condemned them all to hell. Because God is so rich in mercy that his character compels him to give an opportunity. Even with the words teaching that all men are guilty and that God does see yeah, yeah, he agrees. He agrees. He says they're all guilty, they're all condemned, and God is rich in mercy. And he looks at people who stand condemned, and his mercy necessitates this out of his nature, how loving he is. Hey, here's an opportunity. So it's not that they deserve it. That's the first. It's not that they deserve an opportunity. Well, that, that's a well-placed question. Is it an unlimited mercy? That's... That's where I think you get into the intuitive game. What counts as that? That's where I think you run in. He's going to run into problems. I, I think you're going. He's going to run into problems there. Of kind of what? What counts? What? What counts as enough mercy? What counts as enough kindness? How are we? Who adjudicates that? Is that everyone being saved? Is that every single person hearing? Is that Christ dying for every single person? What? What counts? He's not. Wesley's not going to have an answer to that. Okay. But does Scripture seem to suggest that the gospel is something demanded by God's character? Not that we deserve grace, but that God's character is so great that it issues forth. Let me just ask this. I mean, what texts would you turn to? If you were called upon, no one has to actually raise their hand or anything. If you were actually called upon to justify why God could, could in fact, send all people to hell, what would you turn to? What do you think about that? My guess is you'd have to think a little bit harder than you initially thought. If you were trying to find a, not just, well, everyone be condemned to go to hell. Okay, it would make sense. No one's entitled to grace. But the argument from God's rich in mercy character, compelling or issuing forth in a opportunity. Let me suggest a couple texts, okay? Number one is Romans 9, 14 through 18. We have the God who is rich in mercy, and then listen to this. It sounds like there's something more fundamental than the mercy in terms of who gets what. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And we're going back to your point here. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
And I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For this very purpose, I raised you up, talking about Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whoever he wants to harden. So it doesn't sound like God, just because he is a merciful God, has some kind of generic merciful overflow to everyone that looks exactly the same. It seems like there's something more fundamental, namely the divine will that determines the object of that mercy. Okay, so it's kind of step one there is to say, it just simply doesn't follow that just because God is merciful, that all of a sudden there is this universal overflow of mercy that is the same everywhere to everyone. But what about Philippians chapter 2, 4 through 11? Let me turn there real quick. Philippians chapter 2, 4 through 11 is the famous um, Christological hymn there. Uh, and it just, it's very difficult to understand it as this is just the effect of God's mercy. Okay, it sure sounds like the second person of the Trinity, okay, is doing something here. Listen to this. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that the therefore doesn't seem to just follow from some inevitable role. The therefore, after his death, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now we're going to get something that is necessary for redemption, the resurrection. The resurrection, necessary for redemption. But it looks like that's not, it doesn't read even death on a cross. Obviously then, because of who he is, next step. The way, the way that it's packaged in Philippians is, therefore, because he became obedient to death on a cross, that is why, that is the basis upon which God exalted him and bestowed upon him every other name. Again, there's more there than just a divine, a generic divine overflow of mercy. Okay, The third text that I would turn to and is, I think, the, the most, uh, the most exp explicitly addressed this is 2 Peter 2. Uh, 4 through 10. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. He's talking about false prophets and teachers. And then he says, makes this remarkable statement about the God who is rich in mercy. He says this in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed in the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world. So before we go there, the angels didn't get a gospel. There's no gospel story for an entire class of created beings. Glorious, conscious beings. These angels. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned. So let me ask, why would God have to, why, wouldn't it stand to reason that God didn't have to spare you and I either? 
But again, notice it starts with angels, but it develops towards men here. It develops. He starts with angels, and then he keeps going down the list. God did not spare angels where they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, angels, no gospel. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness... If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to make to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then we skip forward. Then the Lord, verse 9, knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what I would suggest here is we have a clear picture of God not sparing. It doesn't seem like God's that anyone that God that God's mercy somehow compels him to spare anyone out of that mercy. Okay, between Romans nine, between the obedience of Christ that was rewarded, you might say, with exaltation, between God's choice to not even provide a gospel for angels, but to just send them to hell. It certainly stands to reason that there isn't a generic overflow of mercy that's compelled by God's character, but rather the divine will determines the object of divine mercy, okay? And that certainly everyone could, like the angels of Second Peter, everyone he could have sent to hell and God could have been glorified uh, in his justice in that way. So, so, so in conclusion, I know there's a long answer to that question. I simply do not think it is true that everyone, regardless of the nuance you want to put on it, uh, must be given a genuine opportunity uh, to be saved from their sin if God is truly loving and, and truly just. Okay? I do not think natural revelation means that everyone has heard the gospel. I think it is necessary to hear it. There are clearly people who have not heard it. Um, and the only efforts to try to evade that conclusion come from, uh, it just seems fair. It just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem whatever the case may be. If God, next objection, I'm gonna, uh, 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 we're not going to finish this one. That's okay, though. This is a real important one. If God elects some and not others, then he does not really desire all people to be saved. But God does desire all people to be saved. Therefore, God does not elect some and not others. Uh, this is a great opportunity to talk about the two wills of God. Who, besides Stephen, is familiar with the two wills of God? One, two, three. Kind of. Three and a half, maybe five. Okay. The two wills of God. So the two wills of God have been called different things. Uh, the declared will of God versus the decreed will of God. The hidden will of God versus the revealed will of God. The sovereign will of God, the perceptive will of God. Okay, we can make a little, little chant all right, if we wanted to about how many ways this has been described. But here's the idea. There is one sense in which God will, God's will always comes to pass. And there's another sense in which it doesn't. And both of those are true, and it's not a contradiction. You don't believe me. Now, some of you are like, what does that mean? Remember this and stand firm, Isaiah here. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, 
a man uh, uh, of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Boom! It will happen. If God is going, says He's going to do it, it will happen. Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Job's rhetorical... Uh, the, Job, uh, who is answering the Lord's question in Job 42, says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We remember again, Romans 9.19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It's a rhetorical question. Answer, nobody. Okay, but right alongside that, we find a group of texts in the Bible where people do, in fact, resist God's will, and they do it all the time. Ezekiel 18.23 have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Matthew's gospel especially hammers this home. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does it sound like God wants people to repent? Is this what Christ is saying? Well, not everyone repented and believed, though. His will was for people to repent and believe the gospel, but it didn't happen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, hold on. I thought the Father's will always happened. This says there's the, clearly the, 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 there's, that's not the case. There are people, the only the people who are going to make it into the eschatological kingdom are those who do the will of the Father. He calls, come to me, all who are labor, who, who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus desires people, to, but, they, but they don't all come. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's talking about the leadership in Jerusalem here. How often would I have gathered your children, those, the Jews in Jerusalem, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing God was wanting to do this. You are not willing. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, not everyone does the, not everyone abides forever. And therefore, not everyone does the will of God. So, so what are we supposed to make of this? This is where the distinction between the two wills. What, one will, what God desires to be the case, and he proclaims that in his word. What God desires to be the case as declared in the word of God. Okay? Then, God's sovereign will, secret will, hidden will, whatever, decreed will, what God sovereignly decrees in the world, okay? Now, I want you, so if you want to see these right back, uh, back to back, let me just read a couple of, uh, let me just give you two examples. One is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So he tells Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to command Pharaoh to let my people go, Okay? And then we get this amazing, we almost never get in real life, backstory into the sovereign will of God. What does God say He's going to do? He's going to harden His heart. You go tell Him, let my people go, I'm going to harden His heart so He doesn't do it. Now, I mean, I can't tell you how much ink has been spilled trying to explain away what that is. The Reformed answer is consistently, this is, just, this is exactly what we're talking about. This is the two wills. Of God, what God declares He wants to be done versus what He sovereignly accomplishes. 
Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We've already looked at this, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to what one author says about this related to the two wills. Moreover, Herod's contempt for Jesus and Pilate's spineless expediency and the Jews crucify him, crucify him, and the Gentile soldiers' mockery were also sinful attitudes and deeds contrary to the will of God. Yet, in Acts 4.27, Luke expresses his understanding of the sovereignty of God in these concomitant acts. So God, on one level, willed the unjust murder of his son. On another level, did he will that people commit murder? No, he said that that, that, that murder is, is wrong. And, he, and this author gives a couple other examples here. Herod's contempt for Jesus, uh, Pilate, the Jews crucifying, so on and so forth. Um, more examples could be brought forward here, but the reform answer to this objection is that God truly does, God does at a certain level desire all people to be saved, and at another level, he doesn't. So if someone asked me, do you really truly believe that he desires all people to be saved? I would say, I would say yes. I'm comfortable with a yes answer. And I don't mean all, you know, all without distinction, though, right, Tyler? Not all without exception. No, I believe that there is a certain level at which there is a desire for every single person to be saved. Okay? As understood as a understood as a come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Okay? Um, but that is actually not what happens in the sovereign backstory. Why? Well, Romans 9, 22 and 23 would be one example. What if God, the question is, why would God not save everyone? Then? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy? which he has prepared hand for glory. There's no vessels of wrath. How can God make his power and justice known to the vessels of his mercy? They're mutually exclusive. Okay? If, just, let me just close with this example. If you think, well, that just makes God schizophrenic, okay? Um, recall that the difference between the, 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 his declared will and his decreed will isn't at the level of deliberation. He's not up there deliberating in his head. That's at the level of desire. Okay, and and if you understand it at the level of desire, there's just nothing odd about it at all. Um, suppose someone called me and said they had uh, free tickets for me to go to the Masters. Masters tickets. Glenn and I strike out every single year trying to get tickets to the Masters. Someone says, "Hey, I've got Masters tickets." Shanti's out of town though on a girls' trip, so I'm watching the kids and I can't find childcare. And I say, "Um." I can't go. I'm sorry. I've got to watch my kids. Now, what would you think of the person who said, see, you just didn't want to go enough? Well, or, no, no, not even that. Say, you didn't really want to go. Well, no, I mean, I trust me. <laughs> trust me. I wanted to go. No, you didn't really want to go because you didn't. Well, because going to the masters and watching my children are mutually exclusive things and I put a higher prize on something else, okay? There's nothing odd about that. 
There's nothing weird about that. There's nothing bizarre about that. And, 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 um, and certainly, there are things that are mutually exclusive. Uh, God cannot desire to draw a circle and a square at the same time on the same page. I mean, attributing logical nonsense to God doesn't blow up our, doesn't inflate our understanding of Him. Okay, and so uh, in, the, in the sense that there is a sense in which God has a declared will that He reveals in His Word and expresses His disposition for how He wants things to be, and there is a sovereign will, and I would suggest that a peek into how you reconcile those things is this piece from Romans 9 about what if, and Paul's saying, consider this as one option of how those two things could work together. Okay, we're two minutes over time. I wanted to get through the two wills. I'm going to take questions about the two wills of God. That is a really important concept. I'll answer maybe uh, uh, one or two more objections next time, and then we will move on to a discussion of um, uh, endurance, uh, perseverance of the saints. Okay, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for uh, the time. pray that uh, uh, through the my, my muddled words that uh, there's helpful things spoken and that uh, minds were challenged, but in a good way to think through the scriptures, to not assume uh, slogans uh, that we've heard over and over again, uh, good or bad, to test all things by the word of God. Lord, we pray that, uh, that our time together would bear fruit. Bless us as we enter into our next hour of worship in Jesus name. Amen.